I think a common worry when hosting a large group of people is that of having enough food. It's hard to calculate with large numbers how much you really need. Thus, what I usually do whenever I'm hosting a big meal is that I overestimate and have tons of leftovers. Thus, the scenario in the reading from John's Gospel today, or at least a certain aspect of it, may feel somewhat familiar. We hear that Jesus went up the mountain and sat down with his disciples, possibly to escape the large crowd that had formed because of all the miraculous signs he had done. But he does not escape them, and when he sees them coming toward him, he asks Philip, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? That is, although he could have been feeling a bit put upon, since he presumably went up the mountain to be, have some alone time, his first concern still was meeting the basic needs of these folks. Now, the passage says that Jesus knew what he was going to do and asked Philip this question to merely test him. I also think that Jesus was modeling for his disciples what it means to truly minister to folks, not just worrying about their spiritual needs and well-being, but also their physical needs. Philip also sees their need, and it is great. He has even calculated that more than six months' wages would be necessary to buy food for everyone to even have just a little. Now, although Jesus knew what he was going to do, he engaged his followers in coming up with a solution. Now, the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the most well-known miracles attributed to Jesus. This story is the only miracle story that all four Gospels record. And as such, you probably know the rest of the story. From the five barley loaves and two fish offered up by an unnamed boy, we hear that all were able to eat as much as they wanted. And even more surprising, the disciples gathered up the leftovers and filled 12 baskets. Now, one of the popular interpretations of this story is to explain the abundance of food generated in terms of people deciding to share their hidden stashes of provisions with others after having seen this young boy's willingness to give up his own loaves and fishes. Apparently, it was not common for people to keep food in their cloaks and robes as they traveled. Food was not as plentiful back then as in modern times, where practically everywhere you turn, there's some sort of food establishment. And whether it was inspiration or shame that motivated them, the idea is that the story is plausible, given this reality. Now, other scholars caution against these types of interpretations, which tend to downplay the miraculous aspect and potentially turn God into some social manipulator and behavioral modification then replaces amazing grace as the core of the story. But for me, whether the reason for the abundance is from Jesus performing a miracle or human hearts being inspired or even shamed into sharing their provisions, the striking point for me was the fact that given the context, people did not hoard. You can imagine a crowd of 5,000 following Jesus around, not knowing where their next meal may come from, one wouldn't fault them for stealing away a little to keep for the next meal that they might not know where they might be for them and their families. Yet apparently that did not happen. Somehow, transformed by compassion and inspiration, the crowds do not hoard, 
but instead rest in the grace manifested in this sacred meal together. The descriptions from John sounds a lot like another meal in the New Testament, where Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. The feeding of the 5,000 thus foreshadowed the Last Supper. According to John, the feeding happened during Passover, which celebrates God's deliverance of Israel from captivity in Egypt. In this story of the feeding of the 5,000, we find the beginnings of our Eucharistic celebration, a gathering of people who are hungry, the good shepherd who watches out for his flock, a community of disciples that support Jesus and are mentored by him to carry on his work, thanksgiving for all God's gifts and the sharing of a sacred meal. As I reflected on this passage this week and on this miracle of sharing and not worrying about whether it will be enough, I wonder how Jesus would look at the immigration debates going on. Would he see us actively acting out of love and sharing from our abundance in the same way that he and God love us? Now, one narrative in these debates that has been gaining traction speaks of the hordes of immigrants, a particular type of immigrants overrunning our country, placing a burden on our healthcare systems, our educational systems, and welfare systems. The most damning narrative plays to people's fears about crime and terrorism, claiming that immigrants are more likely to engage in these than the US-born. A narrative that refers to a burden that recent immigrants place on US society is really not so new. It was used, too, in the past against waves of European and Asian immigrants. And even the family separation policy that has attracted so much attention recently, whereby children were taken from their parents at the border and placed in different detention facilities, sometimes all the way across the country. This policy is, is merely an extension of policies that have been implemented over the past several decades to deter and punish undocumented and unauthorized immigrants in our country. Some believe that this separation of immigrant families is intentionally designed to destroy people's hope and break their will so that they forfeit their rights and leave. Our current arts deacon, who is a mental health professional, admonished us deacons to call it what it is, child abuse, plain and simple. Years ago, a friend of mine was called by her comadre in desperation because her three young daughters had been scooped up in an immigration raid in Los Angeles and were going to be deported back to El Salvador. Her comadre did not have immigration papers, so she begged my friend, a US citizen, to take them in. My friend went with her husband to the detention facility and saw the three girls, ages 8, 10, and 12, led out to them in handcuffs. The immigration official told them that the girls, because they were from El Salvador, had absolutely no rights, and that, quote, dogs have more rights than they do, unquote. They eventually released the girls to my friend, but not before processing them like criminals, taking fingerprints, mugshots, a very traumatic experience that caused nightmares for months in these young girls. 
Now, no matter where you might stand on immigration policy, the vitriol directed towards immigrants should give us pause. At its roots, these attitudes exist because we fail to see the other as a human being. Hateful policies and treatment are only possible when we see people as somehow separate from us, apart from us. The Department of Justice recently, I think only last week, directed its attorneys to now use the term illegal alien rather than undocumented immigrant, another way to dehumanize people. However, we are called to seek justice and peace and respect the dignity of every be human being. This is the last, and some might say the most important, vow of our baptismal covenant. And Jesus saw in the multitudes of the 5,000 not only their need, but their resources. We too should see immigrants and any other human being in this way. A few months ago, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services changed its mission statement from secures America's promise as a nation of immigrants to administers the nation's lawful immigration system. Now, they might have taken nation of immigrants out of their mission statement, but our country remains very much a nation of immigrants, enriched by the diversity of backgrounds and perspectives that this brings. Perhaps this goes without saying in a place like Los Angeles, where one would be hard-pressed to not know someone who is an immigrant. Maybe you yourself are an immigrant. If not, think about the immigrants you know personally. Think of the gifts that they bring to your life and our country. Think for a moment about how your life would be different if you had not known them. We need to provide a counter-narrative to the one that dehumanizes and in the name of law and order, inflicts real harm on immigrant families. One way to do this is through joining organized protests, such as the many that occurred recently, to support the idea that families belong together. It was heartening to see such a wide array of individuals joining such protests, and undoubtedly played a part in the family detention separations being halted. However, there's so many other ways to get involved our own diocesan sacred resistance task force, signing petitions, donating time or resources to organizations that provide support to immigrants, pushing for more just policies and humane treatment. What is also needed are more personal connections between immigrants and those who dehumanize them. It's the same with other stigmatized issues, homosexuality, mental health, or HIV, personally knowing someone affected tends to change your perspective. Think about how you might be able to facilitate personal connections between immigrants affected by these policies and those who have these harmful attitudes, perhaps through our extended families or other friends. Ultimately, the well-being of our entire country will depend on our ability to counter this prevailing view as certain groups as separate from the rest of us. As people of faith, we are called to provide a different view, one that, regardless of one's political views, still respects human dignity and sees not only others' needs, but their gifts and resources as well. Amen.